Hi everybody, CJ here, your handsome yet humble hazardous history helmsman. Once again, wielding the Louisville slugger of truthiness against the rotting pumpkins of ignorance and propaganda. This is episode 122 of the Dangerous History Podcast, Principal Ruffian and Chief Among Plunderers, The Norman Conquest of England. Approximately 950 years ago, at 9 a.m. on the morning of October 14, 1066, two armies faced off against each other several miles outside of the English town of Hastings. On the high ground stood the army of King Harold Godwinson, the Saxon King of England. We don't have exact numbers for troops on either side, but it's believed by modern experts that Harold probably had an army of seven or 8,000 men, the vast majority of them infantrymen armed with either a spear or an axe, and with the front ranks creating a dense shield wall against attackers. Looking uphill at Harold's army from a few hundred yards away was the army of Duke William of Normandy. William's force was numerically probably pretty similar to Harold's, but its composition was much different in a variety of ways. And perhaps most importantly, as much as 20 to 25% of William's army were horse cavalry, or knights, and another 20 to 25% of them were archers. Still, the English had the high ground, and in the ancient and medieval worlds, very often heavy infantry could defeat cavalry and archers if they got them into close quarters pitched battle. And in fact, for quite a while that day, it looked like Harold's infantry would do just that until... The tide of battle turned in a way that would ultimately result in Duke William being thereafter known to history as William the Conqueror. In short, what would unfold over the course of this bloody day, and the battle raged almost all day from around nine in the morning until dusk, it would close the door on one period of English history and usher in a new one. And in this episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, I'm going to do my best to share the story of this conquest, including the backstory on it and the aftermath. But before we jump ahead with that, I've got two awesome individuals to thank for stepping up to support the show via Patreon. Huge thanks go out to Carlos and to Kenneth. Thank you both very much for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast over at patreon.com slash profcj. And just as a reminder to everybody listening, if you're not already a Patreon supporter of the show, if you sign up to support the Dangerous History podcast via Patreon with a donation of $1 per episode or more, you'll have access to special bonus episodes through Patreon that are available nowhere else, and you will be eligible to join, if you so desire, the private Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. So here we go into the story of the Norman conquest of England in the 11th century. This turned out to be another one of those episodes, kind of like my recent Smedley Butler episode, that honestly ended up being an unexpected labor of love, but a labor of love that was accomplished with a ton, more than I expected, of blood, toil, tears, and sweat, as Churchill would put it. Now, in part, this was because of kind of work and personal things that I've been dealing with lately, really ever since the hurricane hit. And not all of these things are directly related to the hurricane, although some of them are. But basically, ever since the hurricane hit a few weeks ago, I've had a lot of stuff going on that I won't get into, won't, won't bore you this time at least with my personal problems. 
but been dealing with a lot of things that have been slowing down my work on the Dangerous History podcast by eating up my time with other stuff. But part of why it took me longer than I thought to put this episode together is simply due to the nature of this story and my research on it. The research and other prep work for this episode ended up taking me twice as long, at least, as what I had expected when I initially decided to go forward with this episode, which, by the way, is a topic I'd been, I've had on the hopper for a long, long time. And while I already knew a fair amount about this story, what happened was what so often happens, that once I really dove into it and started digging up more research, I found that there was still tons about it I didn't know, and furthermore, to make things even more complicated, tons of things that I thought were sort of established facts of the story that in fact have been and still are hotly debated for the last 950 years since these things happened. Now, I've long been interested in this story of the Norman Conquest of England, in part just because of the sheer spectacle and the sheer ballsiness of the whole idea of a Norman duke successfully invading and taking over England, and the incredible story and how much of it simply depended on luck and, and the whims of fortune. But another reason I've always been fascinated with this story is in fact personal, because According to family genealogists, I can trace some of my ancestry on my mother's side all the way back to William of Normandy, a.k.a. William the Conqueror. So while, as you'll find out in this episode, I don't exactly have a lot of love and admiration for the guy for the most part, nonetheless, the fact that I do have some tenuous personal genetic link to him has just always made me intrigued by the whole thing. A few caveats before we proceed. First, please understand that while the main basic facts of the Norman Conquest of England are pretty well known, almost every specific detail of this story is at least potentially open to question and has been questioned repeatedly ever since the conquest happened right up through recent scholarship. And mainly this is due to the lack of detailed source material on many of the things that happened having to do with this story, and with the serious flaws with the sources that we do have, which generally are in the form of bias toward one side or the other in this conflict. Bias that in some cases is so over-the-top and blatant as to cause one to question a lot of their versions of the story. I'm not claiming to have the answers to a lot of these questions, as I'm not a specialist in medieval England, but I have done my best to put together a version of the story that I think makes sense, and I've done my best as an interested amateur in this particular field to try to figure out what seems to be most likely in regard to a lot of these questions. And... I've done my best to put together a version of the story that is somewhat simplified so that it's easier to follow, because I can tell you firsthand, as someone who just finished reading a small pile of books on this thing, when you really get into the details and the weeds and the backstory and all this sort of thing, it's very easy to just get totally lost. So I've tried to put together a somewhat streamlined version of the story, but I've tried to do the streamlining in such a way that it doesn't sacrifice factual accuracy or anything along those lines. Also, I'll ask preemptive forgiveness, those of you who are fluent in either Old English, you know, Anglo-Saxon, or in medieval French, or even modern French for that matter, please forgive me for mispronunciations, I'll probably do worse on pronouncing some of the French things, but uh, I may mangle an Anglo-Saxon word as well. 
Another thing I want to mention here at the outset, just to get you maybe like if you're not at all familiar with this story and you want to just get sort of a handle on the human element of it, particularly of some of the key characters like Harold of England and William of Normandy. I don't always do this when I'm reading about history, but I couldn't help it when I was rereading and reading for the first time some different sources. Um, you know, I was reading some books that I had read about the conquest already, and I was reading some newer ones that I had never read before. And it had been a number of years since the last time I went on a Norman conquest kick and read up on it. And one of the things is that, of course, I've seen a lot of different TV shows since the last time that I really was on a Norman conquest kick, which was probably about 10 years ago. And I have to say, and maybe you'll find this helpful to kind of think about these guys, that I couldn't help but think of a lot of Game of Thrones aspects when I was thinking about the Norman Conquest and trying to understand the characters. A lot of the elements of this story and the characters in it remind me of different characters and themes from Game of Thrones. And, you know, I'm sure many of you know that George R.R., maybe more R's, I don't know, I forget how many R's are in there, uh, Martin... Clearly, a lot of his storylines and characters in Game of Thrones are inspired by actual history, and he himself has admitted as much. And the main influence seems to be the War of the Roses, but clearly there's a lot in Game of Thrones that comes from ancient history and from other medieval stories and so on. And I think there's at least some elements of the story and the characters that are perhaps to some degree inspired by people connected to the Norman Conquest. And from my perspective, I have no idea if if Martin did this at all, you know, consciously. I doubt it. But in my mind, in particular, William of Normandy in a lot of ways reminds me of the character of Stannis Baratheon, in part because of appearance. He's got short hair. He's clean shaven. The Normans were somewhat unusual for medieval Europeans in that regard. Very close cropped hair, clean shaven. But more importantly than that, he's a guy who's often depicted in sources as being competent and, and in some ways fair and even-handed, and yet also at the same time kind of ruthless and humorless and very stern. And Harold Godwinson, I have to say, reminds me at least somewhat of Tyrion Lannister. Now, not in size. Harold Godwinson is described in the sources as a tall, well-built guy, not as a little person, but in terms of some aspects of his character and just the impression you get from him. Harold Godwinson is often portrayed as being competent and, in a way, fair, but while being an effective leader and certainly a skilled leader of men in battle, as being a guy who's not single-mindedly obsessed with war the way William was, who's uh, kind of more cultured, I guess you could say, about Harold by the standards of back then, and a guy who had a reputation for oftentimes being portrayed as being surprisingly wise and fair, and as being relatively humane in a lot of cases by 11th century standards. The sort of guy that you would look at and go, well, you know, if we have to have a ruler, I suppose we could do a lot worse than this. Now, I want to say a brief word as to sources, and I'm not going to list every source that is you know, a primary source or a very early secondary source about the Norman Conquest. But I want to mention a little bit about the sources generally and then mention a few things about some of them specifically, just so you get an idea of what we're talking about. Since this story happened almost a thousand years ago, and it happened at a time and place where 
literacy was really not at all widespread. In fact, many kings and earls and dukes during this period were illiterate or virtually illiterate. Because of this, our sources are unfortunately quite limited in number, and in terms of getting multiple points of view about a lot of the specific aspects of the story, that's limited as well. Most sources are pretty clearly either highly biased towards the Normans, which is probably the more common bias, or the minority, which is highly biased towards the Anglo-Saxons. And not all the sources cover all of the specific key points of this story. So, for example, some sources might mention one particular important event, but in doing so, they're obviously extremely biased in their depiction of it, whereas the other sources that might have a counterbalancing point of view might fail to mention that particular event at all. So, in a lot of cases, with some of these key questions of the story, it's tough to even do a sort of compare and contrast to try to figure out what the real truth might be. Like I said, most of the really detailed sources on the conquest are Norman ones and are therefore, as you would expect, highly slanted toward the Norman views on everything. Now, that doesn't mean they're automatically wrong about everything, of course, but it just means you can't just accept what they say as being the truth, as being face value. In other words, take it with the proverbial grain of salt. One of the most important sources for this story, for example is entitled Deeds of William, or that's what the title is when translated into English. And it was written by William of Poitiers, who was a Norman chaplain who was very close to Duke William and who was present for most of these events. And in fact, even like a surprising number of churchmen at the time participated in the fighting and who wrote about all of this only a decade later in the 1070s. This source has a lot of helpful info in it, but it's way over the top in always praising William and taking his side in every single issue. So, again, can't just take it at face value. It's clearly an example of court history. Now, to counterbalance that, we've got several different versions of what's known as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which, as the name might indicate, takes a very different point of view that's much more biased towards the English. Unfortunately, like I said, there are some important issues where only one side, either Norman or Saxon, mentions something, and we don't always have the opposing source or an opposing source that would cover that particular story point in a different light. And in fact, in some cases, these gaps in the sources of one side or the other seem to be very convenient to that side's point of view, and so seem to be, in fact, deliberate lies of omission, rather than just simple, honest editorial oversights. One of the few Norman accounts that's not 100% slanted towards the Normans all the time, and is therefore one of the more interesting accounts, and perhaps one of the most fair was a source written by a monk named Orderic Vitalis, who came over with the Normans and who wrote of the conquest and of the colonization which followed in the decades after it. And like I said, in some ways, this is possibly the most even-handed primary source we have. Then there's, of course, a source which on the one hand seems to illustrate a lot, quite literally, and on the other is actually kind of ambiguous in a lot of things. And that's the most famous source in most people's minds, on the Norman conquest of England, and that is the so-called Bio-Tapestry. The Bio-Tapestry is a gigantic illustrated version of the story of the Norman conquest of England. It's approximately one and a half feet wide by 230 feet long, I guess you would say, and it's sort of like a comic book of the story, 
as told from the Norman perspective, of course, starting not long before the death of King Edward the Confessor and going through William's victory at Hastings. It's actually technically an embroidery, not a tapestry, though it's always been called the bio-tapestry. And the reason it's technically not a tapestry is because its designs are stitched, whereas tapestries, the designs on those are woven. Be that as it may, the bio-tapestry, as everyone's called it for hundreds of years, was commissioned by a very interesting character in this story, a bishop named Odo of Bayeux, who was William the Conqueror's half-brother. So it was commissioned by this Norman, but it was actually made in England, most likely somewhere in or around Canterbury. And what's really interesting about this source is because it was commissioned by a Norman and yet made by English artisans. Some scholars who've analyzed it have argued that the tapestry actually portrays a kind of ambiguous point of view on the whole thing, where on the surface it appears to be a totally pro-Norman source, and yet when you look at some of the specific details and some things that are almost a little bit more kind of hidden in plain sight type of thing, it's actually sometimes being quite subversive, though subtly so, against the Normans. By the way, in case you're curious, the picture for this Dangerous History podcast episode at profcj.org is perhaps one of the most famous images from that tapestry, a picture of an armored warrior at the Battle of Hastings with an arrow stuck in his eye, which is a figure that many believe is supposed to be King Harold himself. Well, with, with all that taken care of, let's go ahead and jump into the real narrative of this story. And let's start with a little bit of backstory of England getting into the medieval period. And with this, as with a lot of other aspects of the story, I'm giving you a somewhat simplified version so that we can get the big picture and the important ideas, but not get totally lost in all of the super intricate and vast weeds of all the various dynasties and invasions and battles between nobles and so on that characterized post-Roman England. After having occupied... England for several centuries, the Romans left the place in the year 410. And not long after that, people who are referred to often as Anglo-Saxons, who came from basically modern-day northern Germany and Denmark, began to invade the place. And over a few centuries, they pushed the Celts, who had previously inhabited the place since long before Roman times, out to the fringes of the island to places like Wales and Scotland. The Anglo-Saxons, as they took the place over and populated it, organized what would eventually become known as England, with England being derived from the term Anglo. They organized it initially into multiple kingdoms, and then Vikings started to invade the place in the 9th century. But under the leadership of English kings such as the most famous of all from this period, Alfred the Great, They were generally prevented from conquering England outright, though they certainly did it a lot of damage and did a lot of plundering. And by the 10th century, there seems to have clearly been a notion of a unified kingdom of England. And unlike the previous paradigm in which there were several independent kingdoms, now those independent kingdoms had basically been turned into earldoms, ruled by powerful noble dynasties, and then there's a single king as like the top guy above that. Then, in the early 11th century, Danish Vikings took over England for a while. The best known of these was a king named Canute, who, though he was a Danish Viking, ruled England from 1016 to 1035. Now, despite being a foreigner, he managed to rule England 
really without changing things much internally. He left most of the Anglo-Saxon earls in place, and in fact he had as his right-hand man a very important and interesting character from this era, a man named Godwin, who was Earl of Wessex. Godwin was a Saxon earl who was in many ways perhaps the most powerful man in the country during his lifetime. And I just have to say, in a lot of ways, Godwin reminds me of Tywin Lannister, the old patriarch of the Lannister family on Game of Thrones. He's ruthless, ambitious, and though he's not a king himself, at least in some ways, he seems to be more powerful than the kings, and yet simultaneously, he's trying to get the throne for his family. After Canute's death, there was a power struggle in England, which was eventually won by a man named Edward, who was a descendant of King Alfred. However, Edward had actually spent much of his life growing up in Normandy, which we'll talk more about in a moment, which is the northern coast of France, just opposite the channel from England. And Edward's mother was in fact a Norman. And in some ways, many would say that in practical terms, Edward himself, once he came to the throne, ruled as more of a foreigner than did Canute. For example, he mostly surrounded himself with Normans as advisors and so on. Now, when it came to the crown and inheritance of it, the Anglo-Saxons of this era did not practice automatic primogenitor. In other words, the king's eldest son didn't just automatically become king. Instead, it was a little bit more of a complicated, somewhat open-ended process in which, first off, a king could designate a successor, but that in and of itself didn't 100% guarantee the succession either. There was also the kind of final authority on this question, a group known as the Witan, which was a council of supposedly wise men, but basically in practice, it's the most important and powerful nobles in the country. And these guys had to approve of a king. They had to kind of elect him. And in some ways, it's kind of analogous to like the way the cardinals elect someone to become the pope. In other words, don't let the word election fool you into thinking we're talking about like a genuine democracy, right? And this practice of having the Witan elect a king is probably the main source for the long-held belief by some people that the Anglo-Saxons were somehow... Democrats with a small d. But in fact, this whole thing is far from democratic. We're talking about a tiny fraction of a percent of the population electing the king. And sometimes they seem to just be rubber stamping a choice made by the previous king or something like that. And then sometimes they seem to be exercising their own free will. So it's very complicated. In this process, certainly family lineage counted for something, and certainly the wishes of the previous king, if he designated a successor, counted for something as well. But at the end of the day, neither of those two things in and of themselves alone guaranteed one the crown if the Witten didn't sign off as well, and wealth and power could potentially influence or pressure them, as could other concerns as well. There might be someone who might have a good claim to the throne, but is seen as kind of a foreigner in the eyes of these leading nobles, and maybe they'd rather pick someone who they saw as one of their own, as an Anglo-Saxon, who maybe didn't have all the other bona fides, but who fit their preferences better than any of the alternatives. Now, King Edward had some serious friction, to put it mildly, with Earl Godwin, who'd, among other things, killed Edward's brother. However... Edward realized that he needed Godwin's support to really successfully rule England, and so he actually married Godwin's daughter and had Godwin himself as one of his right-hand men for many years. In 1051, King Edward got fed up with Godwin for a variety of reasons and kicked him out of the country for disobedience. But 
Godwin came back a year later with enough of an army to basically make Edward into his sock puppet for the rest of his reign. And this is when Edward, who'd always had a reputation as being pretty religious, became much more religious than previously. And this is where I think he started to get known by the term that eventually became his eternal nickname, the Confessor. While Godwin had outmaneuvered him in power politics, many believe that Edward fought back against him by refusing to impregnate his own wife, which, if you'll recall, Edward's wife was Godwin's daughter. And so he might have been getting back at Godwin by refusing to create a royal heir of the Godwin lineage. Now, not everyone believes that. Some scholars have argued that the confessor's wife may simply have been infertile. Who knows for sure? But one way or another, he never fathered any children with her. Now, according to the Norman version of the whole story around this, it was around this time in the 1050s when Godwin had turned Edward into almost a sock puppet king that Edward began communicating one way or another with William of Normandy, a powerful duke, about the possibility of leaving the throne of England to him. And if this is true, it's probably being done out of anger at the Godwins and as another way to kind of stick it to them and to stick it to their Anglo-Saxon supporters who had emasculated Edward's power as king in a lot of ways. So many believe, and of course a lot of the Norman sources explicitly say, that Edward promised the throne to William following his own death. Now, this may or may not have happened. We don't know 100% for sure. There's a good chance, I think, that something like this may have been said, some sort of message or whatever, and it certainly may have led William of Normandy to believe that it was a done deal from then on, but the fact of the matter was that while the endorsement of the prior king definitely counted for something in one's claim to the throne, it alone did not 100% guarantee that you'd get the throne if the Witten chose someone else. In other words, regardless of what William may have thought was being promised to him, the fact was that Edward didn't really have the power to just unilaterally hand over the throne to his choice of guy upon his death. Earl Godwin died in 1053 and left his eldest son, Harold, as heir to the family's wealth and power and the title of Earl of Wessex. And for a number of years, the the latter years of Edward the Confessor's reign, Harold actually functioned as sort of like his regent, as his right-hand man and the guy that in some ways at least was running a lot of things. Now just a little bit more about what England was like in this era. England in the 11th century had about 2 million people living in it. About 10% of the population were outright chattel slaves. In contrast to Normandy and many other locations on the continent where, under the influence of reformers within the church, slavery was either gone or on the way out, in England, slavery was a thriving institution. Now, of those who were not slaves, the vast majority of England's free population were basically free peasants who worked land that, believe it or not, in most cases, they actually owned in one way or another. Though, in some areas, nobles had increasingly started to treat people as if they were tenants on land that the nobles ultimately owned. And then there was the nobility, who numbered perhaps only about a quarter of a percent of the country's population. They, of course, owned land and much, much bigger pieces of it than did common free peasants. Sources indicate that the minimum amount to qualify as a thane, which is sort of like a low-level noble kind of knight and so on, was possessing about five hides of land, and that higher-up nobles 
who were much more closely connected to the king and to the central government, usually owned at least 40 hides, and in many cases much more. Land in medieval England was measured in this unit called a hide, and a hide is about 120 acres. So we're saying a low-level noble has more than 600 acres of land. And even kind of the minimum to be a high-level noble is thousands of acres. Now, of course, the highest of the nobles were those known as the earls, who were almost like many kings within their own territories They would control whole regions, places like Northumbria or Wessex or East Anglia, just to name a few examples. And they owned massive amounts of land. And then, of course, you have the king above them as sort of like the Earl of Earls. So that's just a brief sketch of kind of what England was like at the time. Now let's talk a bit about this place called Normandy that I've mentioned a few times but not really talked about in detail yet. The people known as the Normans were the descendants of Vikings who had raided northern Europe and eventually settled down on the north coast of France in an area that came to bear their name and still does to this day, Normandy. The Dukes of Normandy did nominal homage to the King of France, but they were almost kings in their own right, comparable in many ways to English earls, and yet in some ways were even more powerful and independent in regard to their king than were English earls in regard to theirs. The Normans, once they settled down in northern France, actually fairly quickly dropped a lot of their Scandinavian language and ways in favor of French ones. Unlike the earls and lesser nobles in England, French nobles were great castle builders at this time. In fact, there were very few castles in England prior to the Norman Conquest. In addition to building a lot of castles, French nobles also had large numbers of chevaliers, which the English would eventually call knights. These are guys who fight on horseback and are noble vassals to higher nobles. And fighting on horseback was something that was almost unknown in England prior to the Norman invasion. Increasingly, the nobles in France were using their knights and their castles to take greater control over the masses who lived in their territory. Historian Mark Morris, whose book The Norman Conquest, The Battle of Hastings and the Fall of Anglo-Saxon England, which in my opinion is the single best scholarly work about this whole story, at least that I'm aware of, Morris says this of French knights in the 11th century, quote, Chevaliers were a long way from embracing a code of chivalry with high ideals of justice and honor. These early knights did not see it as their responsibility to protect the poor and the weak. On the contrary, a large part of their job was to terrorize the lower orders, persuading them to accept the authority and the material demands of the new Castellan lords. No sooner do we encounter castles and knights than we start to hear about bad customs, new tolls, new taxes, restrictions on movement and behavior. To be a knight originally was to help discipline a peasantry that had hitherto enjoyed considerably greater freedom, coercing them into accepting the new order that was starting to emerge. End quote. Obviously, when this sort of stuff starts to get imported forcefully into England, a land that had previously had much, much less of this sort of thing, it's going to be very hard on the common people to force this way of doing things on them. Now, one of the key characters of our story, William of Normandy, was born in either 1027 or 1028. Many people, especially when he was a youngster, called him William the Bastard, because his father, a Duke of Normandy known as Robert the Devil, hadn't been married to his mother, and according to some, William's mother may have been the daughter of a tanner, 
although other sources say she may have been an undertaker's daughter. William had a tough childhood. His father died when he was fairly young, and he faced all sorts of threats on all sides. He survived multiple assassination attempts while growing up, and in fact saw his own steward murdered in front of him when he was only 10 years old. William not only managed somehow to survive all this, but as a young man, he became very skilled at war and ultimately defeated all of his rivals. At one point, he even successfully fought off an alliance between a neighboring noble and the King of France. Throughout his life, though, both before and after he seized the throne of England, he'd have to periodically fight off attacks on Normandy. During one of these wars with a neighbor in northern France, when William was a young man and was laying siege to a fortress called Domfront, the defenders there displayed animal hides and taunted William for being a tanner's son. When William eventually took this outpost, he had all the defenders inside not only killed but mutilated. According to the account of Orderic, William ordered 32 of Domfran's defenders to have their hands and feet hacked off, something that was brutal even by 11th century standards in Europe. Not surprisingly, after they heard about this, the other strongholds in the area that were holding out against William's forces quickly submitted. And William learned an interesting lesson. Psychological warfare can be very effective in getting people to submit to your will. By the time he reached his late 30s, and we start to get towards the time period of his invasion of England, William seems to have been a competent military man and ruler, but very much a cold, stern, draconian sort of guy when it came to enforcing his will. In 1064, when Edward the Confessor was nearing the latter part of his reign, Harold Godwinson of England traveled to Normandy, and we're still not totally sure exactly why. There's conflicting stories on this. Whatever the truth of the details of the trip actually were, we'll never know with 100% certainty, but it's undoubtedly a key moment, his trip to Normandy in 1064, a key moment for the history of both England and Normandy. So much so that this trip is actually the very first scene depicted on the bio-tapestry. Interestingly, English sources, Anglo-Saxon sources, don't mention this journey at all. Now, Norman chroniclers say that Harold was going to tell William that he agreed with Edward's supposed granting of the throne of England to William upon his death. A much more likely story is that Harold was actually journeying to France to negotiate the release of some of his relatives who were being held there. And I think Mark Morris makes a pretty compelling case in his book that this was the real reason Harold went to the continent. But regardless of the reason for the journey, somehow Harold's party were shipwrecked and ended up being taken prisoner by Count Guy, who was a neighbor and rival of William of Normandy. And when William heard about this, he ordered Count Guy to release Harold's party and turn them over to him. The two men, Harold and William, seem to have actually gotten along pretty well at this point and may have even been friends. Harold seems to have spent a fair amount of time with William in northern France, during which time Harold actually served with William's forces. We're not sure exactly how long Harold was in northern France with William, but he seems to have spent a fair amount of time there, during which time he actually served with William's forces in battle in Brittany, and William apparently made Harold one of his knights, which included Harold swearing an allegiance to William at the Norman Cathedral in Bayeux, or perhaps at another church, depending on the source. A 
According to some versions of this story, unbeknownst to Harold, until after he'd sworn the oath, he'd sworn over the bones of a saint. And this, of course, has great impact in the medieval mind. It seems there are some different possibilities as to what really happened and what Harold was really doing and what William really perceived of what was being said. It seems that Harold may have sworn to serve William but that he didn't intend that to include backing him for King of England after the death of Edward. In other words, he might have been only swearing to support William as his vassal while in Normandy. Or he might have said whatever he thought he needed to say, given the fact that technically speaking, he was kind of in William's custody and therefore at his mercy. He might have been sort of saying whatever he thought he needed to say just to get released. Perhaps he was interpreting things to mean whatever he wanted them to mean, but one way or another, William apparently got the impression that the throne of England was pretty much a done deal. It would be his after Edward the Confessor died, and that Harold would back up his claim. Now, the Saxons would later dispute this, and some of them would say that Harold had only sworn to serve William when he was in France. The Normans would claim that he'd promised far more than that, and this oath by Harold is one of the major things cited by William and the Normans to justify their invasion of England just a few years later. Now, soon after getting back to England, Harold had trouble with his younger brother Tostig, who was a duke, and at the very least was kind of a hot-headed troublemaker, and some people speculate may have been, to one degree or another, like actually insane. And basically, Harold, who all sources seem to indicate was much more level-headed and reasonable, decided to throw Tostig under the bus and backed a rival duke against Tostig during a rebellion. And in the end, Tostig was forced to leave England. After being in bad health for a while, Edward the Confessor died, childless, remember, on January 5th, 1066. Overall, he'd had a very problematic reign, like we've mentioned, a lot of problems between him and Godwin, and ended up really not accomplishing that much other than establishing Westminster Abbey as one of his few significant lasting accomplishments. Now, immediately after the Confessor's death, Harold Godwinson claimed the throne of England, in part based on the fact that Edward while lying on his deathbed, had supposedly touched Harold's arm and supposedly had said something that indicated that Harold was his chosen successor. More importantly for this and for other reasons, such as they saw Harold as being English rather than quote-unquote foreign, the Witan would support his claim over those of rivals, including not only William of Normandy, but also some other English claimants who probably had a better claim in terms of genetic family lineage. I'm fascinated by Harold Godwinson. When I first started to get into the story of the Norman Conquest, I was much more interested in William of Normandy, but I got him figured out pretty quickly. And I've got to say, Harold Godwinson himself, as a person, remains somewhat more of an enigma as a historical character. We know relatively little about him, in part because he was only King of England for about nine months. Though he was an important earl for a number of years before the death of Edward the Confessor, and in fact was almost like the equivalent of a prime minister for a while. What little we do know about him indicates that he was a tall, handsome, fit man, and that he had a reputation for being competent as both a military and political leader. And there's also some evidence to indicate that he preferred peace to war whenever it was possible. 
in part based on some of his behavior while he was an earl and on the fact that once he was king, he chose to have the Latin word pax or peace put on his coinage, which kind of shows you his priorities. Even though Norman sources sometimes describe Harold as a guy with a reputation for wisdom and courage, they oftentimes go way over the top in portraying Harold as this habitual liar, this oath-breaker, this tyrant, and much, much worse. But this seems to be just classic propaganda. Harold could be very effective in dealing with enemies, though ultimately, as we'll see, he'll lose against William of Normandy. In short, I think we could say that Harold, while he certainly wasn't a saint by any means, by the standards of contemporary medieval nobles and kings, he seems to have been a fairly competent and decent guy. His coronation took place just one day after the death of Edward the Confessor. In fact, it was less, I think, than a full 24 hours after on January 6, 1066, in Westminster Abbey. And in England at that time, having a coronation that quickly after the death of a king was very unusual, and some people kind of saw it as almost like a faux pas. To the English of this time, the coronation wasn't seen as actually causing someone to be king, but more as just sort of ratifying and celebrating it. And as a result, it was actually more common for a new king to be coronated months, sometimes many months, after the prior king had died. And really, after the new king had already been chosen, but, you know, he wouldn't be coronated for many months. Harold kind of broke precedent on this by doing it less than 24 hours later. And according to historian Mark Morris, the fact that Harold arranged to have his coronation done so quickly is kind of an indication that Harold knew that his claim and his position were kind of shaky. Back in Normandy, William was absolutely furious when he discovered that Harold had claimed the throne of England. William had been bragging for years that he'd soon be the king of England, and now he looks like a dumbass. And this is the kind of politics where, even more so than in modern politics, saving face is so important. And so he really kind of went apeshit and threw a fit. Supposedly he was hunting or getting ready to hunt when he heard the news, one of his favorite pastimes, and he just kind of like, you know, threw a fit, different versions of, you know, a combination of, of a silent fit and kind of just anger and all this sort of thing. And pretty quickly, William began recruiting nobles and mercenaries to build an army, of course, promising them land and loot if they were successful, and began planning an invasion of England, which was a daunting task. It was a very risky operation, to say the least. But William probably saw it in the way that most medieval military leaders would have, especially those who, like William, seemed to have been fairly religious. And that was he saw it as ultimately putting the question into God's hands, sort of like a larger version of the idea of trial by combat, which was, of course, a feature of most medieval legal systems in medieval Europe. Now, aside from just promising people land and loot to recruit as many nobles and other people as possible to his campaign, William also got Pope Alexander II to bless his invasion of England by characterizing Harold as an oathbreaker and a bad Christian, and thus by basically characterizing William's campaign as a crusade, even though this is, what, a couple decades before the first real quote-unquote crusade, but that's actually kind of how this was portrayed by the papacy. And you have to understand that in medieval Europe, prior to the Reformation, getting the blessing of the Pope 
for some military operation you want to do is sort of like the equivalent of getting UN authorization. It gives you, at least in the eyes of many, a veneer of legitimacy. And then, of course, add to the fact the religious element, right? If you're a noble or a knight or just a mercenary or whatever, you've probably done lots of nasty things during your life and career. And now you're told, hey, here's one where you can go and kill and rape and pillage and steal, and it's actually authorized by the Pope. You're actually doing good in the eyes of God by going and kicking ass and taking shit. Now, the Pope was seemingly very happy to oblige William in this because he was angry at Harold Godwinson for kicking out the Pope's favorite Archbishop of Canterbury, and also because William had in the past helped out the Pope previously. Also, just in general, the Pope and many other higher-ups within the Church thought that the Church in England had become a bit too lax on a lot of things, and wasn't adhering closely enough to Catholic Orthodoxy. Of course, like I said, William also promised those who would help him that they would get a cut of the spoils, especially land, in the event of his victory. And his men actually got promises in the form of written contracts as to what they'd be entitled to. Now, the combination of religious purpose and good old-fashioned plunder and land theft enabled William to throw together a rather large army by medieval standards in a relatively short amount of time that contained not only Normans, but people from many other parts of France and even some contingents from other countries outside of France itself. We don't have reliable exact numbers, and some of the contemporary sources from back then are way unrealistic in how many men they say William had. We can look at like the largest armies mobilized by medieval kings and say, yeah, no, a source that says William had 150,000 men in his army is not remotely correct. More realistically, based on the evidence and the logistical capabilities of what was available and what medieval rulers actually could feel at the time, most of the rational, sane estimates are that William put together an army of between five and 10,000 men, most likely somewhere around the middle of that, say, maybe 7,000 total, which by medieval European standards, especially by kind of 11th century standards, was a pretty impressive army. But still, it's a daunting task to cross the channel, invade England, and take it over. Now, while all these preparations are starting to be underway, Halley's Comet, which medieval European sources referred to as a long-haired star, came by Earth in April of 1066, and William took it as an auspicious sign, as a signal of divine favor for his cause, whereas many in England apparently took it as an omen of trouble. William was busy working on a fleet, something which Normandy hadn't really had previously. In contrast to the English, who had a long tradition of seafaring and using naval power to fend off attacks from people like the Scandinavians, the Normans really didn't have any naval history. Since they'd settled down in Normandy, they quickly lost their Viking ways, including expertise in building and operating ships. And some sources indicate that a lot of the Norman lords were actually kind of phobic about the idea of launching a seaborne invasion. They just weren't comfortable with the whole idea. And in this way, again, I got to harken back to Game of Thrones. It kind of reminds me of Cal Drogo and how they're kind of uncomfortable with the idea of crossing the sea and all that. 
But William was relentless and he bought ships and also built a ton of ships. Many of these were fairly rudimentary and among other things, they couldn't be rowed and they couldn't be sailed into the wind or really sailed well without anything but a direct tailwind. And this is going to influence the timing of when he can cross the channel. But nonetheless, in order to carry all the men, horses, and supplies they wanted to bring to invade England, the Normans ultimately put together a fleet of probably close to 700 ships, which again, by medieval standards of logistics, is quite impressive. Thus, by the summer of 1066, both armies, those of Harold and those of William, were mobilized along opposite sides of the English Channel. But William's force waited, most likely due to unfavorable winds. Remember, a lot of these ships are really not that sophisticated. They can't really tack into the wind. And they waited for months. And both sides were running short on provisions. It's a tough logistical feat, again, especially given the limitations of medieval states, to have this army of thousands of men and just have it parked somewhere and just keep dumping provisions into them. And in fact, in early September, Harold had to demobilize his army, in part because a lot of it was running short on provisions, and in part because a fair number of it were actually militia who were only obligated to serve for a certain amount of time. Meanwhile, Harold Godwinson's exiled brother Tostig came back to England, but he didn't come back alone. He came back with a man named Harold Hadrada, a Viking king, and of course, a Scandinavian army to accompany them. Harold Hardrada was claiming the throne of England based on his connection to King Knut. He was a real badass, much more of a quote-unquote barbarian than either Harold Godwinson of England or William of Normandy. He had a reputation as a brutal warrior and also as a cruel authoritarian ruler. In fact, Hardrada means hard ruler or tyrant. And I won't get into it here because of time, but the life story of Harold Hardrada reads like something almost from a Robert E. Howard story. Now, this Scandinavian army led by Hardrada and Tostig arrived in northern England, and Harold Godwinson had to very quickly recall his army and march it north. Hardrada's army beat an English army at a battle called Fulford on their way to take the city of York probably the most important English city in the north, and York surrendered to him shortly after their victory at Fulford. But all the while, Harold Godwinson's army was on the way, and they were covering 20 to 30 miles per day. They were really moving at light speed for a medieval army. When Godwinson's army arrived in the area, they got intelligence about the location of Hardrada's army which at that point they had, after taking York, moved to a small town called Stamford Bridge. And Godwinson decided to launch a surprise attack. At the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which was fought on September 25th, 1066, Harold Godwinson's army would win big, although it was very costly. Both Tostig and Harold Hadrada were killed, and their army was virtually wiped out. But the victory was very costly to the English, too. We don't have that many details on this battle, unfortunately, though we know that Hardrada's forces were not at all expecting this, they were taken by surprise, largely, and that due to that and the fact that the weather was apparently warm, apparently a lot of Hardrada's army were not wearing full armor when Godwinson's army unexpectedly showed up and attacked. One of the few anecdotes we have about this battle is that at one point, a single Scandinavian warrior, perhaps literally a berserker, 
was just fighting like a maniac on the actual bridge at Stamford and was just fighting off multiple Englishmen at a time, may have killed a few dozen of them. And then finally, when some English soldiers managed to take this one guy out, it was like a psychological turning point in the battle and the English began to win and eventually wiped out much of their opponents. And so as a result, Harold Godwinson had proven himself a capable wartime leader. He'd defended his realm and his crown, and he'd won a decisive but very difficult and costly victory against a very dangerous opponent. Hardrada was considered one of the most scary badasses in Europe at this time. Unfortunately for Harold Godwinson, two days after the Battle of Stamford Bridge, the winds by the channel changed, and the Normans set sail. And the very next day, they landed at Pevensey in southern England. And they landed unopposed, because Harold's army was still way up in the north where they had just beaten the Scandinavians. Upon arriving, the Normans confiscated what they could from the local population for supplies and burnt and destroyed a lot of what they didn't confiscate. It was very common in European warfare in this time period to really go after the local population and their livelihoods pretty hard as kind of a way to show them that their own king couldn't protect them properly. Tragically, as in most wars then and ever since, and since long before this, the average people who, in a direct sense, don't really have a dog in this fight, they're the ones that often have their lives the most disrupted, ruined, or simply ended. On their campaign of pillage and destruction, William took the one good route towards London, this old muddy road, and to a large extent the Battle of Hastings will happen as a result of this choice, as Harold's army would ultimately come south to meet him. Sources say that messages were exchanged between William and Harold during this time, and that the gist of it was that William offered to let Harold remain the Earl of Wessex if he would just give up the crown of England. And Harold countered by saying he'd let William go home to Normandy in peace if William would pay compensation for all the damages his army had done to the country so far. And the Normans really had done a lot of damage to the persons and property in the areas they were occupying, in part out of strategic concerns. Basically, they were trying to bait Harold into coming out to them and seeking decisive battle. Because William and the Normans knew that if Harold kept his forces in London and just sort of played defense for the time being, the Normans would really be at a serious disadvantage, especially as time went on. Some sources argue that Harold really made a major mistake by taking the bait, or at least by taking it up as soon as he did. And they argue, and in my mind they're convincing, that Harold really should have waited to rebuild his army a bit more, because he'd lost a lot of men at Stamford Bridge. Perhaps Harold moved quickly because he thought he might have the element of surprise again, the way he'd had against Hardrada. But in this case, unlike when he was going against Hardrada's forces, the Normans had a lot better intel and information on Harold's whereabouts and his army's movements. And thus, the Normans were able to move and to confront Harold's army, and they really had more of the element of surprise on their side than did Harold. Now, I wanted to say a little bit more about the two armies before we talk about the Battle of Hastings. These two armies were most likely pretty evenly matched in terms of numbers, but in other ways, these two armies were very, very different. First, the Anglo-Saxons. The elite, the most effective troops in Harold's army, were known as the Huscarls. They were basically heavy infantry. Though many of them rode a horse to the battle, they would then dismount and fight on foot. 
They were equipped with large, heavy shields, and most of them were equipped with battle axes, big, heavy, two-handed battle axes, though apparently some of them had large, two-handed broadswords as well. These heavy battle axes were very effective. They were capable of dealing mortal blows not only to men but to horses. And while William's cavalrymen in this battle, they wore armor on their bodies, their horses weren't wearing any armor. These Huskarls were very effective, very disciplined and brave, but Harold probably only had a little bit over 2,000 of them in total. The remainder of Harold's army, the majority of it, was composed of militia, known as the feared, who also fought on foot, but were generally armed with pikes and occasionally with other weapons as well. These were part-time, what we would think of today as citizen soldiers, not nearly as trained or experienced as the Huskarls. And in particular, the Southern Feared, who were the bulk of those who were used at the Battle of Hastings, were less experienced at this time than were the Northern Feared. Harold's force had few or perhaps even no archers, though they may have had some slingers. In battle, Anglo-Saxon armies liked to form a dense shield wall formation, as they called it. Think of it as being similar to a Greek phalanx, a dense formation of armored men with big heavy shields, which could actually be very effective at deflecting archery attacks and also at fending off cavalry charges. By contrast, the Normans had a much more diverse force, both in terms of place of origin, in fact, about two-thirds of their army were not even from Normandy, and also in types of units in terms of their weapons and so on. Now, they had infantry for sure, but also large numbers of heavy cavalry, with armor and very important but often overlooked stirrups. Stirrups were an important innovation in Europe at the time that allowed knights to basically kind of stand and get more leverage while fighting from horseback. And it's one of those little innovations that's easy to overlook, but really greatly magnified the effectiveness of a mounted warrior. Really, the Normans were one of the parts of Europe at this time that were at the cutting edge of European cavalry technology and techniques. And in addition to this, the Normans also had fairly large numbers of archers and even had some crossbowmen among them. William began the battle by having his archers be out front, followed by the infantry and with the cavalry further back, kind of ready to deploy wherever it might seem advantageous. By the way, one very interesting and noteworthy individual worth mentioning who was part of William's army is a guy named... Odo, actually Bishop Odo of Bayeux, who was, as I think I mentioned before, actually William's half-brother. They had a mother in common. And Odo accompanied his half-brother William to England and actually fought in the Battle of Hastings personally, and remember, was the one who commissioned the creation of the famous Bayeux Tapestry years later to commemorate the conquest. I'll just briefly mention what happened after the conquest. In the years following, Odo was for a long time one of William's top advisors and, in fact, basically functioned as regent, running England on many occasions when William returned to Normandy and dealt with wars there and other problems on the continent. However, in 1082, William would actually have Odo imprisoned and his English estates confiscated from him. And my understanding was he was basically involved with planning an invasion of Italy which might possibly have had the intention of overthrowing the Pope. And he had given William some trouble in the past before, and William decided to just go ahead and toss him under the bus at this point. And Odo would remain in prison until William, finally on his deathbed, agreed to have him released. 
But let's talk about the Battle of Hastings. It's one of those things so many people can say, oh yeah, 1066, the Battle of Hastings, and then can tell you relatively little else about what actually happened or what actually was the significance of this. Now, we have more detailed information about this battle than we do about the Battle of Stamford Bridge, but we still don't have as much as we might like to have. And of course, the usual caveats apply where a lot of the sources we do have are flawed and or biased in various ways. But basically, the situation is that Harold's army ended up on top of kind of a ridge line on the road leading to London, or near the road leading to London. And in the formation, Harold himself was somewhere around the center of the line. And I've just got to say one thing about both of these guys, both William and Harold, for all the horrible things you could say about them and all their flaws. I have to say that compared to modern so-called leaders, at least these guys had the courage of their convictions and actually personally fought and put themselves in harm's way in the battles that they caused to happen. You can't exactly say the same about any recent leaders. When William's army approached, the two forces squared off approximately 200 yards apart. And this is actually going to be something that's relatively rare in the medieval period, which is a genuine pitched battle out in a relatively open battlefield. A lot of medieval warfare in practice really was more about laying sieges and that sort of thing. But this is actually going to be a real decisive battle. According to one version of the story, When William was getting ready for the battle, he initially, accidentally, donned his armored mail shirt backwards. And his men initially saw that as a really bad omen. But according to this story, William salvaged the situation very slickly by fixing the shirt, turning it around, and saying, Today I change from a duke to a king. Almost sort of acting like he had done it on purpose or something. William's army was, of course, flying its papal banner around the center of the cavalry line where the duke himself was, and this, of course, no doubt brought some added comfort and confidence to the more devout members of the Norman army. We're told that the battle is believed to have started around 9 a.m. on the morning of October 14, 1066, and trumpets sounded from both armies, signaling the beginning of the battle. It really was almost sort of like a 1950s rumble, only a lot more nasty and brutal. Following the sounding of the trumpets, William's archers let loose, and it was going to be a long, bloody battle, in many ways a battle of attrition and stamina. The Battle of Hastings is believed to have lasted approximately six hours. Harold's army, of course on foot, began with a very strong shield wall formation, like a Greek phalanx. William's mounted knights were kept in the third line back for a while so that they would be available to exploit any gaps that might open up in the English lines that might be caused by the archers or the Norman infantry. Now, as the battle unfolded over the course of the day, initially Harold's army did very well and they fought off repeated Norman attacks. For quite a while, Norman archers and infantry were just not that effective against the wall of Saxon shields. Then the Norman knights charged in to see if they could cause gaps in the lines. The Saxons probably had little or no experience facing heavy cavalry, but still their shield wall held. Harold ordered his men to stay put and hold their ground, which they continued to do for hours against repeated attacks by infantry, cavalry, and archers. However, after one such attack was fended off, 
Harold's right flank pushed back a Norman attack, but then made the mistake of breaking formation to pursue them, while the rest of the army, still following Harold's orders, stayed put. Now, it's one of those situations where if the whole army had done one thing or the other, they probably would have done well and maybe even won the battle. If they would have either all attacked together, maybe that would have been enough to break the Norman lines, or if they would have all stayed put together, they would have been able to keep defending themselves successfully. After all, they had the high ground. But part of Harold's line charged forward while the entire rest of his force stayed put, opening up massive gaps in the line. Some sources say that the Normans had deliberately feigned a retreat in order to lure the English to come down off the hill and cause breaks in the line. Others say that this was sort of an accident, that the Normans were actually retreating for real, but then they realized the opportunity and were able to take advantage of it. Either way, this ended up being one of the crucial turning points in the battle, which finally opened up gaps in the Saxon shield walls. Now, while all this was going on, a rumor spread through the Norman ranks that William had actually been killed. But William, who was very much alive, actually pulled back his helmet to show himself, and he rallied his men, and if anything, their morale seems to have been even higher than before the rumors started. And he rallied his men and led a group of knights to go after the English who had foolishly charged down the hill. Seeing what had happened, William then ordered more attacks followed by feigned retreats designed to lure more of the Saxons to break formation and come forward down off the hill. It seems to have worked and opened up more openings in the Saxon lines. Over the course of the battle, William himself would lose three horses, but would remain intact himself. Each time gaps were opened up in the English lines, William made skillful use of archers and cavalry to exploit these. In the late afternoon, William ordered his archers to start shooting high up over the shield wall to have the arrows come down on the men behind the shields, and this seems to have been pretty effective. The bio tapestry depicts Harold taking an arrow in the eye and then being finished off by Norman knights. What apparently happened, at least according to some sources, is that Harold was wounded in the eye but may have still been actually alive, and he was being protected by his personal bodyguards. William saw this and sent a small elite kind of hit squad of knights to go in and take Harold out. They were successful. They killed him and they mutilated his body horribly. And there are several different versions of exactly how he died and how he was mutilated, but it seems pretty likely that he was disemboweled and beheaded. And at least one source refers to the Normans chopping off Harold's thigh. And some modern scholars say that this may have been a euphemism for castrating his corpse. Either way, Harold's body was so badly mangled and dismembered that it was hard to tell after the battle which carcass was even his. And according to various sources, it was either Harold's mistress or perhaps his mother who later identified his mutilated remains. Harold had won against Harold Hardrada, and honestly, he could have very easily won the day at Hastings, had just a few things gone a little differently. And if he had won at Hastings, he would probably to this day be remembered as one of medieval England's greatest hero kings. He might even be as much of a hero in the national mythology of the UK as someone like King Alfred. But of course, enough things went against him. And William, while he didn't cause this luck to happen, he was certainly skillful enough to exploit the openings that chance or fortune or whatever you want to call it provided for him. 
This is how historian Ian W. Walker puts it in his book, Herald, the Last Anglo-Saxon King, which is the only scholarly modern work focused on this king that I'm aware of. Quote, The truth is that Harold was an extraordinary man who was faced with an extraordinary crisis in the autumn of 1066. He faced this unprecedented crisis undaunted and came within inches of surmounting it. In the end, he was simply overwhelmed by events and found that his luck deserted him at the very last. William's victory over Harold was indeed a tremendous feat, but it was one in which luck played a significant part. End quote. In other words, Harold played the Game of Thrones, and he played it pretty well for a while, but then he ultimately lost the game and paid with his life. And he certainly wasn't alone that day. Approximately half of all the Anglo-Saxon nobility died in the Battle of Hastings. The primary sources describe a horrific battlefield right on up through the following morning, with all just dismembered bodies lying around, people horribly mutilated, moaning in agony, the Normans going around finishing off the wounded in some cases. Just horrible stuff. Not only did about half the Anglo-Saxon nobility die in the battle, but many others would die in subsequent years. And those who did live through all this stuff often lost their lands and their titles and all that kind of and all those sorts of things. In the aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, having defeated the one force that could have offered them real opposition, the Normans then went on a rampage through the area, trying to establish their dominance and authority. The cities in the south, mostly and probably prudently given the situation, quickly submitted, and by the time William's forces reached London, the Archbishop of Canterbury was offering William the crown. Of course, not all the country was ready to submit. The North, in particular, would offer resistance for a number of years. Later, William would have a church built at the site of the Battle of Hastings to commemorate his victory. And I don't doubt for a second that he believed that he'd had God on his side. The Witan bowed to the reality of William's victory and accepted him as their king. William's coronation as King of England took place in Westminster on Christmas Day in 1066. Some kind of a crazy situation happened at the coronation, and there are different versions of exactly what went down, but basically something along the lines of some of the Norman knights who were stationed to guard the coronation thought that a riot was happening, and then they went on a rampage of the neighborhood around Westminster and burned people's homes and that sort of thing. So it was really just a chaotic sort of a situation. Like I said, the North continued to resist William for a number of years, and in 1069, Northerners in England even invited the King of Denmark to come over and liberate them. William put this down brutally, and his practices in doing this, which got known in English history as the harrying of the North, included not only massacring people, but deliberate destruction and removal of food supplies, and these practices have in modern times been compared to those of William Tecumseh Sherman, and the harrying of the North is estimated to have caused the deaths of approximately 10% of the population of England due to these extreme measures that William brought to the North. Orderick says this about the subject, quote, My narrative has frequently had occasion to praise William, but for this act, which condemned the innocent and the guilty alike to die by slow starvation, I cannot commend him. 
For when I think of helpless children, young men in the prime of life, and hoary graybeards perishing alike of hunger, I am so moved to pity that I would rather lament the grief and sufferings of the wretched people than make a vain attempt to flatter the perpetrator of such infamy. End quote. Not long after this, in 1072, William invaded Scotland to get revenge for Scottish support of these northern rebels, and he was able to achieve a punitive treaty against the King of Scotland, who had to give William hostages and acknowledge William as his overlord, although William did not conquer and annex Scotland outright. William's reign was one that was characterized by colonization and subjugation. Unlike Canute, William would change England significantly. Canute had basically seized the throne, but then left most of the English aristocracy and practices in place. As long as the English nobles submitted to him and worked for him, he was totally willing to leave them in their positions. But William couldn't really do that, even if he'd wanted to, because of how much land he'd promised all of his supporters. He simply had to confiscate and redistribute land in order to keep all of them happy. And also, in a different realm, but in many ways analogous to that, he also had to replace a lot of the clergy in England, especially at the higher levels, with his own men because of promises he'd made to the church hierarchy. In the early years of his reign, William very quickly and aggressively began looting the country in various ways for himself and his supporters, and not only did a lot of his sidekicks and entourage get tons of English land, he also sent tons of gold and silver valuables down to the Pope. Now, historians have long debated whether or not the Norman Conquest really changed much for the average people. Historians Stanford Lemberg and Samantha Meggs put it this way in their book, The Peoples of the British Isles, From Prehistoric Times to 1688, quote, The Normans came in relatively small numbers with the intent of forming a new governing class. For a century or more after the conquest, there were thus two social classes based on ethnic differences the Normans functioning as aristocratic rulers and the Anglo-Saxon inhabitants as the common people. Naturally, the change was felt most severely by members of the old Anglo-Saxon aristocracy who lost their wealth and status, end quote. Now, many would go even further than that and say that while the old Anglo-Saxon nobility clearly suffered from the conquest and its consequences the most, because they had had the most to lose, the average peasants saw more continuity than change. In other words, they simply saw a change in kind of the manner and culture of those who were in charge of them. In my own opinion, though, there was a ton of real change. Some of it admittedly positive or neutral, but much of it very, very nasty to all social classes of Anglo-Saxons. And these changes, whether good, bad, or neutral, can be seen in a variety of realms. It can be seen in the language, as spoken French became the language of the elite, and Latin became the written language of the state and the court while the common people continued speaking Anglo-Saxon. Now, over the centuries, those two languages would mix together and influence the evolution of what we think of as the English language, which is basically a Germanic language, but with some French elements and French words kind of mixed in haphazardly. It's also why we have so many cases in English where we have a longer, more sophisticated-sounding word for a thing, and then a shorter, kind of gruffer version of a word for the same thing. By the way, just kind of an interesting side note, all of our four-letter words that are kind of gruff-sounding, like fuck, 
shit and cunt can actually be traced back to old Anglo-Saxon. Another change the Normans brought to England was they built a ton of castles so that they could rule over the Saxons, who outnumbered them almost a hundred to one. In fact, in the century following the Battle of Hastings, the Normans built approximately 900 castles in England, a country that prior to the Norman Conquest had had almost no castles at all. Many people have pointed out that the building of so many heavily fortified castles shows that the new Norman ruling class saw itself as pretty much what it was. In other words, a tiny elite group, very much outnumbered by natives over whom they were attempting to rule, and without anything really remotely resembling the consent of the governed. Which, interestingly, is very similar to how more recent European colonialists have felt and operated in places like Africa and Asia in the heyday of modern European imperialism. The natives are restless, right? Besides castles, the Normans also built a lot of new churches and monasteries and other religious buildings in England as well, and they tended to do so in a new continental style, eventually to be known as Romanesque amongst art historians, a style that was very different from how the Anglo-Saxons had built churches previously. So you could see that the, the leadership and the power of the country had clearly changed hands to a totally different group, a group that to the Anglo-Saxons would be seen as basically foreign and alien. William's men became the new aristocracy, and he brought in new bishops too. And the church in England was brought very much back in line with Catholic orthodoxy. The Normans brought other practices to England, too, a lot of it having to do with how land ownership was seen and practiced and so on. The Normans had a practice of incorporating places into their surnames in order to signify ownership of land, something that the Saxons had never really done. The Normans brought continental feudalism to England, which was pretty different from the patterns of power and land ownership that existed in pre-conquest England. William gave land to his friends and supporters in order to pay them for their service in the conquest, and then in return they had to basically run local governments and also provide William with military service and certain numbers of troops whenever he needed them. It's true that some elements of feudalism had previously existed in England, but it really wasn't fully established until after the Normans took over. Among the major changes the Normans brought with them in regard to land ownership was the idea of written feudal contracts between the king and his vassals, and then also written contracts from the vassals to their sub-vassals and so on. The Normans also brought the practice of primogeniture to England, the idea that the estate of a noble should be passed down entirely intact only to the eldest son. In the legal system, the Normans introduced many rules and practices that revealed that they really saw themselves as an occupying colonial-like force under potential threat, under potential siege from large numbers of natives who outnumbered them and didn't like them. Just to give you one example of this, William introduced a new law called the Murderum, which said that if a Norman was murdered, the lord of the area of whoever had apparently done the murder, had to produce the guilty person within five days or they, or they would have to pay a large fine. And if the guilty person still remained at large, then the whole community of that area would have to pay a major fine until the culprit was produced. 
Historian Mark Morris describes the intention of this law in the following terms, quote, Clearly, the aim was to deter both lords and communities from granting protection and anonymity to such killers, and the obvious inference is that this is exactly what they had been doing. The Merdram fine conjures the vivid picture of Englishmen up and down the country, frustrated by the failure of the major rebellions, continuing to vent their anger against their Norman occupiers by picking them off individually whenever the opportunity presented itself, end quote. William also brought the continental approach to forests, basically game preserves, and the laws regarding them, in part because he loved hunting and wanted to have lots of royal hunting preserves in England, and he wanted to prevent the common people from being able to take any of his game. In fact, it's in the famous Domesday book that the word forest appears for the first time in an English state document. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle described William's draconian punishments for poachers on quote-unquote his forests, quote, whoever slew a hart or a hind should be made blind, end quote. In some instances, in order to make and enlarge these royal forests, people were kicked out of their homes, and homes were destroyed, and entire villages were destroyed. The Domesday Book reveals that William, quote-unquote, created somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 acres of forest game preserve, which in practice meant destroying villages and hamlets and displacing at least a few thousand people. Slavery was a common institution throughout all areas of the British Isles in the 10th century. The Normans came from a society in which, as far as I can tell, outright chattel slavery no longer existed. While some of the Normans, including William himself, seemed to have had some misgivings about the practice of slavery, which seemed to have been caused by certain church leaders who were kind of reformist and condemned the practice, nonetheless, they did not actually abolish slavery in England once they were in charge of it. They did, however, abolish the slave trade, meaning the export trade of selling English slaves to customers in other countries. And it is true that while William was in charge, the overall number of slaves in England declined by about a quarter. Also, sources seem to indicate that when William invaded Wales at one point in order to punish the Welsh for supporting an English rebellion against him, he may have actually liberated hundreds of slaves during that expedition. Now, the changes were not entirely a one-way street. In other words, the Saxon ways also made a mark on the Normans over time, especially in subsequent generations after the first. This is something that's very common in history. It's very common for a conquering population to, quote-unquote, go native, at least to some degree. And just to give you one example, the Normans who invaded England, who were known for their clean-shaven faces, short hair, and in fact, they even shaved the backs of their heads. Much of William's troops did this. They would shave the backs of their heads and just leave a little bit of short hair in the front. And yet, after a generation or two in England, they started to adopt a lot of the fashion senses of the people they'd conquered, which meant emulating the Saxon style of long hair and mustaches. And in general, it seems like it was the younger generations of Normans who were the first ones to start doing this, and some historians believe it may have been just a classic way for the youth to rebel against the ways of their elders. But the more generations the Norman nobility lived in England, the more they went native. It's not to say they entirely gave up their distinct ways, but they kind of over time melded it more and more with the indigenous ways. 
But despite talk like that, one should never forget that all of these changes were imposed by force and were accompanied by a lot of death and destruction. Orderic describes it this way, quote, The English were groaning under the Norman yoke. The petty lords who were guarding the castles oppressed all the native inhabitants of high and low degree and heaped shameful burdens on them. For Bishop Odo and William Fitzosborne, the king's vice-regents, were so swollen with pride that they would not deign to hear the reasonable plea of the English or give them impartial judgment. When their men-at-arms were guilty of plunder and rape, they protected them by force and wreaked their wrath all the more violently upon those who complained of the cruel wrongs they suffered." Now, I just want to briefly mention a little bit about the so-called Domesday Book, because it's another one of the most notorious things connected to William the Conqueror's reign in England. In 1085, William ordered that a very detailed census of all the persons and property in England be taken, apparently so that he could better understand and thus exploit the kingdom that he ruled. Incredibly, given the magnitude of the project and the obviously, by our standards, primitive nature of communication and transportation in the 11th century, This information was actually gathered within about six months, and not long after that it was collected into a gigantic book. It became known to history as the Domesday Book, supposedly because its findings would be as final as the Last Judgment or something like that. It is a treasure trove of sources for historians, because nothing else like it can be found in any other European country from the same time period. And one of the things the book reveals to experts who have studied it is just how much the land of England had truly changed hands. In fact, less than 6% of those who had been landowners prior to the conquest still owned their land in the 1080s. About half of the land was now owned by Norman nobles, another quarter by the church, and the remainder by the royals directly. Most sources believe that the main purpose behind compiling this data and making the Domesday Book was simply to better enable William to tax the lands that his vassals now controlled. And it's true, he did tax England a lot, and he used England to help him fight wars on the continent against his enemies who were threatening Normandy. But historian Mark Morris believes that taxation wasn't really the primary reason for compiling all this. Morris argues that the real purpose was to have a clear written document to catalog and support Norman land ownership. Quote, Because the process of acquisition had been so protracted, chaotic, and in many places illegal, few if any Norman lords at the start of the Domesday process could have produced written evidence of title to all their estates. But Domesday, once complete provided precisely that written evidence, end quote. Morris says it, quote, was a charter of confirmation for the landowners, giving them the security of title to their estates acquired by the rough and ready process of conquest. It was also, simultaneously, a directory for royal administrators, enabling them to see at a glance who owned what and giving them the ability to seize and deliver lands and to charge accordingly. It was a powerful tool, a weapon even, for an already powerful king, allowing him to exploit what has been called the most powerful royal lordship in medieval Europe. End quote. Knowledge is power. In addition to that, the book solidified William's 
new notion of land holding in England, which was basically that all the landowners in the country owned their lands as vassals of him, the king, a notion of land ownership that had not existed in pre-conquest England, and in fact actually didn't really exist in Normandy either. Not long after the creation of the Domesday Book, on September 1087, William the Conqueror died at around age 60. There are some different stories as to exactly what happened leading up to his death and to cause his death. One version is that what happened was, well, William had gotten very obese in his later years. A lot of sources point that out, so it's probably true. And this one story of what caused him to eventually die was that he had been riding his horse and had an accident where he fell hard on his torso and his torso, it fell really hard on his saddle horn. And, you know, because of the weight, it was a lot of force. And this caused him to have internal bleeding and ultimately peritonitis. Other sources indicate he might have just sort of gotten some kind of illness, not necessarily caused or linked to any accident, or that his death may have been in some way brought about by heat exhaustion, but regardless of what initiated his problems, one way or another, he got in very bad health and lay ill in excruciating pain for days before finally clocking out. Supposedly, on his deathbed, William confessed that he'd committed horrible crimes in the conquest of England, that he'd not been a rightful king, and while he appointed his eldest son as his heir in Normandy, he actually appointed no successor to his throne in England. When William died in Normandy, his top henchmen and sidekicks quickly abandoned his dead body in order to head off to try and grab as much power as they could in England, and as a result, his corpse and his castle in Normandy were looted. At his funeral, which was kind of a sad affair, not just in the normal way of a funeral, but kind of pitiful, William's body, which was already obese and now had been bloating since it had been sick and now dead for a number of days, apparently William's body exploded in a cloud of foul-smelling pus. So, really a nasty end for a guy that caused a lot of nastiness during his life. William was buried at St. Etienne Church in Kent. Harold's body was buried at Waltham Abbey outside London. A lot of older, but still fairly modern historiography on the Norman Conquest, I think went too far in portraying Anglo-Saxon England before the conquest as like a free democratic society. A common theme in a lot of Anglo-American writing about the conquest and its legacy, especially over the last three or four centuries, stressed the notion of the Norman yoke and gave you this idea that the people of England had been pretty darn free before the conquest and then had had to gradually painstakingly regain their lost liberties over the centuries after the conquest. While I think there's some truth to this version of history, I also think it vastly exaggerates how free the average English person may have been before the conquest. But there are some interesting commentaries that mention directly or indirectly the Norman conquest of England in more modern times. Thomas Paine mentions some of this stuff in Common Sense. While bashing monarchy in general, and the British monarchy in particular, shortly after the passage in which he says that the British monarchy, far from having an honorable origin story, quote, it is more than probable 
that could we take off the dark covering of antiquity and trace them to their first rise, that we should find the first among them nothing better than the principal ruffian of some restless gang, whose savage manners or preeminence and subtlety obtained him the title of chief among plunderers, end quote. And shortly after saying that about the British monarchy in general, Payne singled out William the Conqueror as being particularly bad. Quote, no man in his senses can say that their claim under William the Conqueror is a very honorable one. A French bastard landing with armed banditti and establishing himself king of England against the consent of the natives is in plain terms a very paltry, rascally original. It certainly hath no divinity in it. End quote. And, quote, that William the Conqueror was a usurper is a fact not to be contradicted. End quote. It's definitely easy to see Harold and the Saxons as the victims in this story, and I certainly tend to see them that way for the most part. But, to be fair, of course, let's not forget that several centuries before the Norman Conquest, the Anglo-Saxons were themselves the invaders and usurpers who were coming into this island and taking it over, and either eliminating or marginalizing or ruling over its earlier Celtic inhabitants who had previously, for several centuries, been ruled by Roman occupiers. And also, I would point out, while it lies outside my area of expertise, as far as I know, the Celts took the land from the people who'd been there before them, however many centuries or millennia ago. None of which is to say that the actions of William and his posse weren't totally reprehensible, not only by our standards today, but in some cases even by the standards of the 11th century. But it's simply to say that you shouldn't fall into, and I'm as tempted to do it from time to time as anybody, into a lesser of two evils dichotomy that tries to paint Harold Godwinson and the Anglo-Saxon ruling class of pre-Norman England into some sort of virtuous Democrats with a small d. The sociologist Franz Oppenheimer, in his book The State, that I've mentioned favorably on this show, I think more than once before, interestingly points out that the Anglo-Saxons and Normans had in common that they were both not really native to the British Isles, but in fact took them over by force. In this book, one of the main arguments by Oppenheimer is the conquest theory of state formation, i.e. that states can only really originate in some form of conquest and logically and historically originate by no other means. The contract theory of state formation is a fiction. It never has happened, it never could happen, according to Oppenheimer, and I think he's right. And discussing how the earliest states were formed by conquest, Oppenheimer writes the following, quote, Everywhere we find some warlike tribe of wild men breaking down the boundaries of some less warlike people, settling down as nobility and founding its state, end quote. Oppenheimer then goes on to mention his examples of this sort of thing, among others, the Assyrians, Persians, Macedonians, Mongols, Turks, Goths, and many more. And interestingly, in this passage, listing all these groups who've been the aggressive warlike invaders who took over less warlike natives, in this passage, in regard to Britain, Oppenheimer mentions both the Anglo-Saxons and the Normans equally, right next to each other, as both being examples of people who were conqueror-slash-state builders of this sort. So while the Normans and their activities certainly were anything but benevolent, it's unrealistic to portray the Saxon history as one of 
just peace and freedom and democracy or all these sorts of things. Lemberg and Meggs write in their book, The Peoples of the British Isles, from prehistoric times to 1688, quote, Some older writers waxed ecstatic about the quote-unquote democratic virtues of Anglo-Saxon society formed in the Teutonic forests they inhabited before migrating to England. The loss of these democratic institutions was blamed on the fact that the English were forced to assume the Norman yoke after 1066. In fact, little is known about the social organization of early Anglo-Saxons, and such evidence as we do have argues that Anglo-Saxon society was strongly aristocratic. The tradition of a powerful monarchy seems to have existed among the Angles, Saxons, and Jutes, even before their invasions of England. And the Anglo-Saxon kings, like their Norman successors, seem always to have been assisted by followers of high social status, wealth, and privilege, end quote. Now, all that said, I still think there's obviously a large amount of truth to the notion of a brutal conquest and colonization on the part of the Normans against the English of that time. Also, I think just from a purely pragmatic point of view, looking at it from what might have been better for the well-being of just sort of average people in England, I think it's reasonable to hypothesize that because William and his posse of Norman aristocrats had to use more blatant brute force to hold power because of their newness and their lack of legitimacy in the eyes of most of the country, they had to use more brute force to hold power than Harold and the original Anglo-Saxon nobles would have had to use to hold power had things just remained the same in England. And this is not to say that the Saxon dynasty that Harold and his nobles were necessarily more morally virtuous in every way than the Normans, but it does mean that it might have been easier for many of the average people living in England at the time had Harold been able to just keep ruling England with the traditional Anglo-Saxon ruling class. They may not have been great guys, but it would have caused less death, destruction, and oppression to the entire population of England. Well, as you can see, this is, I think, a very interesting but very complicated story, and I've actually told you a fairly simplified version of it, believe it or not. And I think it's fair to say at the end of all this that there aren't any really clear-cut good guys. There's just sort of bad guys and worse guys, and I think probably you could argue that William the Bastard was clearly the latter. If you liked what you heard in this podcast... There are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on keeping on with the show. 
Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.